0: Get down with DND. Yeah you know Get down with d Yeah you know Get down with DND. you know me. Get down with DND. Yeah you know me. Get down with DND. Yeah know me. I'm down with yeah, you know down with down with I know why I am. and I am joined. as so I am always joined by the modest, miraculous and monumentally patient. Mad Wizard Merwin. What is up, Sean? It's been
1: a morning for for some of us.
0: For some of us, but that is neither here nor there. I mean, nobody wants to hear about the trials and tribulations of you and I, right?
1: I do. I want to hear about all about them.
0: Oh, well, you know, I'm working third shift, so it's 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock in the morning here, which is really like my 2 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know. That's
1: good. But the good news is we're only going to get gale force winds tonight of up to 80 miles an hour, which will probably I- destroy Buffalo and all of western New York.
0: It'll be amazing. I'm waiting for the tornado to, to drop down and rip some buildings up. It'll be
1: wonderful. Yeah, so we got that to look forward to.
0: <laughs> so let's get into some announcements as, before we talk about the Pillars of Play, which is part two of our Designing Encounters series. Mm-hmm. So, announcements. Apparently there's some hints and rumors about Numenera 5th edition. So, Sean, recently in um, some things that were released by, uh, by Monty Cook Games, there were pages, torn out pages of, of books that were slid into these uh these releases mm-hmm. that were sent out to uh to to consumers and fans and whatnot that had notes in the margins about converting numenera things to fifth edition d yep. and d
1: yep
0: isn't that clever
1: clever way to promote your thing it, it is it is it's very clever uh it's funny because I saw on Twitter people were saying you know uh, money cook games numenera fifth edition and Having heard what some of the people that work for Monty Cook Games said about 5th Edition when it came out, I thought, well, that, that's not ever going to happen. And apparently there is a big enough pull now that it did. So, hey, we'll see what they put out and how it goes. And I can certainly understand business-wise why you would want to do it. Yeah, follow the money, right? Always. All right. Uh,
0: second thing I want to talk about: uh, relics and rarities. So this is a show on Geek and Sundry. So it's set in a mysterious curio shop. Uh, Deborah Ann Wool. She is the the, the game master. If some people know her from True Blood, she played Jessica. And other people know her from Daredevil. She played Karen Page. She has a. Uh, it, it's a live stream D and D. It's not a live stream D and D game. It's an edited D and D game, but it's you know filmed and whatnot. And it's super clever. So it's in this mysterious curio shop. Every episode starts there, and aside from getting their mission from uh, the the R&R Brigade, which is the Relics and Raiders Brigade, they then get to get up and go around and select an item that's like a trinket, a magical trinket from the shop. So they actually pick it. It's got all these... There's like tons of things in the shop, and they pick it, and then it has... They get some hints for what it does, and then they can take it with them on their adventure. Sweet. Yeah, and then there's a... There's another set that they, they walk over to, which is go, they go through a secret door to get there that's in a bookcase. So you pull a book and it opens up a door to the other set where the game table is. And every week they also have a guest star on. So, like, the first week was Matthew Lillard. the You know, he played Shaggy and he was in the the Scream movies. Mm-hmm. Um, They've had a – I oh mean, who else do they have on there? Or they're they're going to have Kevin Smith on there. They had a Charlie Cox, the gentleman who played Daredevil. Yeah. You know, people like that are the, the guest every week. Mm-hmm. And they have a – it's a six-episode Six-episode season, it's really good. It's probably my favorite stream game that's on, on TV right now. I very much enjoy watching it. It's very entertaining. Uh, the, the The cast is quite wonderful. I especially yeah. in, enjoy, um, there's a gnome who's named uh, Ricky uh, Huckster. Mm. Quite wonderful. <laughs> nice. Quite wonderful character.
1: Yeah, I I saw the like the the teasers and the trailers for it, but I just haven't had the time to sit down and watch any. But it sounds like I will. I must do so now.
0: Well, I, so it's on Alpha, and it's a subscription service. I actually pay the five dollars a month so I can watch it and a uh, few other things. Gotcha. So like, yeah.
1: So that's that's the thing you should be
0: aware of. Like, it's not a it's not free.
1: <laughs> that's that's interesting. That's putting content behind a paywall is definitely a risky business.
0: It is. I mean, there's all, all kinds of content behind that paywall. So, mm-hmm. I mean, like, if you're into all the other things that are on that that channel, then gotcha. you can watch all that good stuff. Uh, Sean, tell me about Tactical Maps Reincarnated. Yes, I will do that.
1: So just a couple of days ago, there was a new release in the D&D world from Wizards called tactical maps reincarnated the tagline is bring your dungeons and dragons game to life with this collection of 20 beautifully rendered full-color tactical poster maps and it is exactly that it is just a pack full of these poster maps which you can use in your games to do tactical things or just to give a nice overview uh, of of a layer or a town or uh, whatever the map shows and they are taken from some of the older products that they've put out, which makes perfect sense. They've got all these maps there. Uh, people are you know, really getting into D and D now let's give them some maps to work with. And so not only is it a cool product, um, but the guild Adepts are working on something that I've been calling project Dora uh, where we are taking those maps and going on. I, I mean, creating uh, adventures. So, there, there are actually 22 maps because some of the posters are half maps. Uh, you know, half the poster are two different maps. Mm-hmm. So the Gilded Depth product, which has not yet received a title but will soon, uh, will have four either sh- uh, long encounters or short adventures per map in the product. So, if you have 22 maps and four encounters or adventures per map, that's 88 potential um, things that you can run. Uh, I'm I've written some of the the adventures. I've also editing the entire project, so I can tell you that there's a variety of different levels covered. There's a variety of different styles covered, so you can pick and choose. Uh, you can expand some of these adventures to create uh, longer campaigns or longer adventures. And you know it's I think overall it's going to be a very good product for d m s that like to take published content and make it their own. It will be up on the d m s guild soon. I'm almost done with editing and then it will go into layout so you know hopefully we're talking now just a couple of weeks rather than months for this to come out.
0: Oh, very nice. that sounds like a really cool cool product to have out there for for d and d yep I mean to go along with these tactical maps i uh, i like the you put in there we we're going on putting on 88 uh encounters or adventure you're going on 80 i mean putting out eighty eight adventure yeah. or encounters for adventures.
1: for <laughs> those of us with kids that live through the dora uh years where she went on adventures with map um this will bring back haunting memories
0: yeah i i, I thought that too I, I like that it's called project dora that's cute yeah. <laughs> yeah. all right uh let's talk about this warlock class for fifth edition from Swell entertainment the it looks pretty neat
1: Yep, we talked to Rob a while ago about his Max Press uh, imprint for Schwab Entertainment where he was creating 5th edition stuff, and he has put out another product. This one is the Warlock class. Uh, so if you remember the Warlock class from 4th edition, um, this is basically a 5th edition version of that. Um, I I went back and forth between not talking about details and talking about it at all, so I'm just going to throw up some, uh, some random details about the about the class Uh, so it uses a d10 hit die Uh, the proficiencies are all armor and shield simple and martial weapons Uh, the proficient saves are wisdom and charisma Uh, you can pick two proficiency skills from athletics history insight intimidation medicine perception and persuasion Um, its main uh, gig if you will is the battle command dice so think of these as bardic inspiration but they're just a D4 uh, rather than a D6 uh, that that a bard would get. So you can add that uh, battle command die to your attack roll, saving throws, and skill checks or ability checks. Um, at third level, I believe you get commanding presence. Maybe at second level, you get commanding presence. Um, this is the old warlock or warlord. Sorry, I'm saying warlock and it should be warlord. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get this. Uh, ability called Commanding Presence where a friendly creature within 10 feet of you will make an attack instead of you. So you use your um, action to let someone else make an attack with their reaction. And if you played 4th Edition, this is exactly what the Warlord did then. Um, The range increases as you progress in levels. It starts out as 10 feet, um, goes to 30 feet at 10th level and 60 feet at 20th level. Um, so people, if you hear people who played 4th edition talk about the lazy uh, warlord, that's what this mm. is. Um, lazy in the sense that the player's not rolling dice because you're just telling someone else to make an attack. Uh, in terms of mechanics, I, I really like this because I like simple classes to play, and this is very simple. Um, you just tell someone else to do do stuff. Um, I, I dislike this mechanic, and I always have, for the reason that... It's a it's a min-max fest, right? Because you're using minimal effort, whereas you're getting a maximum um, outcome because you're going to pick the person who does the most damage. Uh, it, it always goes to the barbarian who's raging or to the rogue who is sneak attacking. Yes. So, although,
0: although this thing, like, I don't know how well it would play with the... Uh... Because of the, there's some range considerations for the the commanding presence, right?
1: Right. So you have to be within ten feet. Uh, so at, at least at, at lower levels, you have to be right up there in the in the fray. But for warlock or for uh, for warlords teaming with rogues, that's even better because then you you've always got a person there to be your uh, sneak attack buddy. It's true. It's so. It's
0: uh, definitely flavorful as far as like driving a certain kind of play style.
1: Yep. So. It's you know it's 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 there. It's a thing. It's it's not great. It's not terrible uh, mechanically. It's flavorful. It's all good. Uh, at second level, you also get inspiring speech, where you can deliver a stirring stirring speech during a short rest to encourage your allies. You um, and friendly creatures that can hear you uh, gain temporary hit points uh, equal to a roll of their hit die. Uh, so you know. During a short rest, get some temporary hit points. Not a big deal. Uh, good, better at lower levels than at higher levels. Um, I would let them add the warlord's charisma modifier to that roll. Just, I'm the I'm the person that would always roll a one on that hit die. So if you you know add two, three, four to that roll, it gives it a little more oomph.
0: Yeah, but, I agree. With, I agree with that. That sounds good.
1: Uh, but, not, you know, nothing major there. Uh, the uh, the subclasses are called military stratagems. I'm not going to go into detail on those because we're trying to keep this a little bit short. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe at some other point we'll look at this whole whole thing in detail if we take a look at the mechanics of other new classes. Yeah, there's um, some
0: interesting things in there.
1: There is. At uh, fifth level you get extra attack. Great. Uh, and then at sixth level you get battle leader. Starting at 6th level, allies within range of your Commanding Presence class feature gain additional damage to their weapon attacks. The amount of extra damage equals your Charisma Modifier. This is the first time when I'm reading through this, I go, wait a second, let me get this straight. So anybody within 10 feet of you, or at 10th level, 30 feet of you, or at a higher level, 60 feet of you, always does extra damage equal you to your Charisma Modifier with weapon attacks. That's pretty beefy. So, uh,
0: let me ask you some questions real quick. Yes. Why why is that make that beefy? Like uh, in your in your opinion like from a design point of view? Because
1: it's something that um at 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 some point you're going to be at least 18 in charisma. Mm-hmm. And and possibly at lower levels. So if you're always giving creatures Especially when you hit tenth level within thirty feet of you, which is for most battles all the time,
0: mm-hmm.
1: a plus five or four on damage with every attack that they do, because a a, a fighter, a rogue, a barbarian, um, you know, rangers, other other martial classes are always doing weapon damage, whether it's mm-hmm. melee or ranged. Um, they get two attacks a round or more. Um, monks, same thing. Um, you know, they, they're, then they're doing uh, they're doing uh, flurry of blows, and they're getting that extra plus four every time. In one round, you 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 know, if you have a melee heavy party, you're talking four times ten, eleven, doing forty four points of extra damage every round with just this one feat not feet, but with this one uh, abil- ability, class ability. I don't know. It just seems seems a little much. Well,
0: it, in in a if if your party is like all of those people, but you know, usually you are probably what it, what gonna have if you have a warlord, and your warlord is functioning as like what? Assume a five person five person party, right? Right. You are probably gonna have a healer of some sort. You are probably gonna have a wizard of some sort. So what? Then there's two other characters mm-hmm. that might that might benefit from right. this ability. I,
1: I, I'm yeah. It, it's it's one of those things that could be could be overpowered depending on the party that you're going with. You know, I I DM for a party of all barbarians. Yes, yes, you, yes, you do <laughs> throw throw this one this... character in with them.
0: This is way more powerful in that situation exactly than in another situation
1: exactly and and so it's not you know it's not but, going to ruin d and d yeah
0: anything. but so, so like when you have a situation like that though you've you've already eliminated the flexibility of having a wizard or the the healing abilities of having a cleric mm-hmm. so like there's there's um to me like your party composition will um impact like how useful that ability is over the course of time sure um it didn't seem to crazy to me like you 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 did point out the worst i suppose like the the most abused not even abused It's not even right like the best possible situation for that class to be utilized
1: mm-hmm.
0: sure. which doesn't seem to be that big of a deal compared to having a wizard that can throw around some pretty destructive magic for the most part
1: absolutely yeah there's
0: so, so it didn't trigger my head as being too um too off yeah especially because you know the other stuff that like that this this particular class does like I don't know if it's that good,
1: <laughs> yeah, well i yeah you know, i I didn't want to talk about the whole class yet, I mean, we could talk if when we do talk in detail about it, you know and we start looking at the military stratagems, then there might be some, even some more overlap that makes it even more powerful or perhaps you know mitigates it a bit i I just i don't know, yeah, um, so
0: yeah, I just uh as far as, like, a, a full design thing, it didn't seem that bad. Like, it seems like it's, like, one of the better things for the class to have. It was mm-hmm. kind of like, oh, cool, somebody can do a bunch of damage, but, like, your rogues probably aren't going to get more than one attack unless you're going to, unless the, um, the warlord's going to give that rogue another attack. Right. Which, of course, why wouldn't you? Makes right. sense to me. Yeah. But then, you know, you're not using your two attacks.
1: hmm Yep. It's, it's just something that I need to think about more, but it just triggered my wait a second uh, reaction. That's all.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, that's why I was curious as to your thoughts because I had a bunch of thoughts when I read it too. I'm like, I don't know if it's that powerful. I think it's good. I don't know if it's I don't know if it's beyond good.
1: No, I'm I'm not saying like I said. I'm not saying it's going to break the game. I'm just saying that what I one thing I look for when I create rules is ways that it could be abused by a, a non, someone who doesn't think like every other gamer thinks, right? Someone who's looking to take advantage of something that at face value looks fine, but then is actually really powerful if it's used in a certain way. That's all. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. Like, uh, uh you, you know, we should probably do a show one of these days. Like, what are the most really ridiculous combinations of things mm-hmm. that we can put together? Right. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, when I played with this all-barbarian group at Winter Fantasy, I played a monk, and so I would stun everything, and mm-hmm. then they, they're they all half-orc barbarians. So they so, just murder it. Well, I mean, if it's stunned, you automatically crit if you hit.
0: Uh-huh, and they usually have that other thing for being a barbarian, which lets you do an extra weapon die when plus, you crit?
1: Plus, with a half-orc, you get an extra weapon die when you crit. Yeah. Plus, you're already rolling d12s. And, so you know, like you've doing had, uh, three or four d twelve damage. It was ridiculous. I mean, it was we we were done with most adventures in like an hour and a half
0: <laughs> because
1: it was just you know combats would last three three turns, not three rounds, three turns. Yep. So it was funny. Anyway, that is uh, yeah, and uh, so it's good to see Rob you know back in in the d and d world uh, doing his thing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Warlord's interesting. Like uh, it's an interesting class. Yep. All right, let's talk about our main topic for today, which is Designing Encounters Pillars of Play. So, Sean, would you lead us in, please?
1: Sure. Uh, as we talked about last week, you know, encounters are a convenient way and a convenient term for breaking down adventures into discrete and manageable parts where you can create or discuss them. Uh, last week, we talked about making them fit into your overall story. So today, we're going to take to the next step, and we're going to uh, talk about designing encounters within the framework of each of the pillars of play. Uh, these pillars are, one, combat, two, exploration, and three, it's been called various things over the edition. Mm-hmm. It's been called interaction and social interaction and role-playing, but you know it's, it's kind of the talky bits, if you will. The talky bits. Yep. So we wanted today to talk about each of these pillars and designing encounters that encompass those pillars. Um, Things to be aware of, some of the joys of them and some of the hazards of them and and so on. So that's where I would
0: like to talk. Sure, let's go. Uh, Let's start with combat. Mm -hmm. So in combat, let's talk about goals because goals are important. What are the goals of the player characters when entering into a combat?
1: So one of the things if you're writing an adventure and you're going to break it into encounters is always say, what what is the goal of this encounter? What's the goal of the PC? What are the goal of any obstacles that are in the way? And obstacles can be anything, as we will talk about uh, in exploration. But start with the PCs. Uh, what's their goal as they enter this combat encounter? Is it just to kill everything in sight mm-hmm. and, and win? Uh, is it to kill nothing? Is it to survive, uh, to and take uh, or take prisoners, but not kill anything? Um, are there any alternative win conditions?
0: Yeah, is the is the combat side of it a um, like a, a more of an obstacle to what is actually going on? Is is often what I'm talking about when I'm talking about alternative win conditions.
1: Yep. Right. Like, uh, yeah. I've I've seen or created combats where the the only goal for the characters is get to the other side of the room get out the other door yeah there just happens to be a bunch of things that are trying to kill you while you're doing that exactly and you know some players will do exactly they know the goal they go and they get to the other door by any means possible and normally you'll have traps or you'll have things spread in there to interrupt that goal more than just the monsters but you know that is one goal another goal is to get get the item and get out Again, mm-hmm. you don't have to kill all the monsters to do that. If you have um, ways to to uh, to get that item, you can do that. Uh, one is just to survive for a certain number of rounds.
0: Yeah, because you're just trying to like be there right. until something else happens.
1: Right, and so then you are, you are trying to figure out is the best defense a good offense or is just uh, you know using your action to. Go on the defensive and give everything disadvantage against you. Your best goal, yeah. It's um, the helm. The helms deep encounter, right? Right. Exactly. So you know all of those potential goals can be um, considered when you are creating a combat encounter. And most players, you know, just enjoy the hack and slash, and they just want to kill things and use the the rules on their sheet to to do that and that's a okay Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um but even for the most tactically minded and war gamey players sometimes throwing in a different goal um really inspires them because it gets them thinking um, mechanically but also may pull them into the story a little bit more than they normally would i agree so that is the goals for the for the characters. Well, let's and talk it, about- okay, I was just going to say just as a reminder, and also you're always going back as you're creating these, saying where does this fit into the story? The goals for the PCs should follow the story that you've been or that you as a group have been telling all along. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, so the next thing is the uh- opposition.
0: Uh huh. So these are the the NPCs of the monsters or other things too that we can get into.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but like, so, like, there's a number of questions that you should ask yourself that you need you need to kind of answer that'll help you create these things, like who are your foes and your allies or your neutral parties inside of an encounter like the, like are they are they all opposition are they not opposition? are they sort of opposition do they have parallel goals do they uh do they have not exactly opposing goals but not not exactly you're not exactly on the same side like oh, somebody wants to kill x, but somebody wants the item that X is holding, so getting rid of that person is fine, but then you know, what do you do about the item? Like mm-hmm. Um So once you've decided who the foes, the allies and the neutral parties are in an encounter, then you need to figure out what their goals are, which is kinda what I'm talking about. hmm
1: Because goals are important, right? That's that's true. And they they do more than just add to the story. They give um they they give tactics to your monsters. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, you could take it one step further and be like, what's their modus operandi? Like, how do they function? And mm-hmm. that'll, uh, that'll help. That can help you play them also, or give you at least uh, if you're writing, give the people who are supposed to be running this thing for, for you after you've done, re- after you're done writing it, um, an idea for how to run those monsters. Right. Uh, another good thing, a couple of good things that you should know about your opposition is what would make them quit? And then what do they know? So let's talk about what would make them quit first. Like, if they have some limits or they you know based on their goals or their their ideals or whatever like they could run away at some point they could give up they could start interacting instead of fighting because they're like well we're out of our death or they find out something informationally that will make them stop fighting right mm-hmm. um here i'll give you i'll give you an example so i was running a running a game and they uh they were the, the players were sort of way in over their head uh, but their opposition was a dragon, but this dragon was collecting allies and people. So instead of killing the characters, the dragon was like, you could just work for me. Mm -hmm. Because the dragon wasn't interested in necessarily just murdering them. He wanted to expand its power base. It wanted to expand its power base. So recruiting these moderately competent characters seemed like a better idea to the dragon if they wanted to be recruited. Or, you know, just eat them if they didn't want to be recruited.
1: Right. And so that that is a case of what would make the dragon quit isn't being beaten. It's you know winning. Yes. It's winning so so overwhelmingly that the dragon now has a um, some leverage and I'm sure we'll talk about leverage later. Uh but has leverage that it can use to deal with the with the characters in a different way. Correct. Uh
0: the other part is like what do they know? So mm-hmm. It's important to kind of know what your opposition knows so that when things change or when if or uh, based on like their goals, like if they have information that the player characters don't have, they will act in certain ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's good to know those things like, oh, look, they're working on a ritual because they know something that the player characters don't know or they're trying to uh, to achieve some other goal in an encounter that that they know about that the player characters don't know or they know something about the player characters so they can use that to, to mm-hmm. you know, interact with them and maybe cause them disadvantage or at opportune moments or other things.
1: Mm-hmm. Or you can switch it around and say, what do the, the monsters, the opposition, the NPCs, what do they not know? Yep, that too. Right, because the players and the characters may know something that, the, the, that who they're fighting don't know and if the characters told them this, they would stop fighting. Uh-huh. Or That's they would change tactics. Like, what would, what right. would make them quit? Or how do exactly. they change tactics?
0: Yep. Like, oh, I got an example for that. So um, running a game and the player characters, are are their goal is to kill this oracle. This oracle is, is evil, nominally evil. And they run into somebody along the way and this person asks them, like, so what are you doing here? Like, what's going on? They're like, oh, we're here to kill an oracle. And instantly the... Um, person they were talking to was like well you can desist or i will kill you because that person was the lover of the the oracle and was you know doing their best to keep them protected but the player characters didn't know that right mm-hmm. <laughs> so yes that
1: that could lead to problems
0: yeah it led to problems mm-hmm. some b- very bad problems but there you go
1: all right so if you know what the goal of the PCs is and you know what the goals uh, and the knowledge and the tactics of the opposition is, then you also need to know where this encounter takes place, what's the environment, what are what are the things going on around the combat. Uh, and this can be for a number of reasons. It can be, again, for story reasons, but it also can be for tactical reasons. Uh, one of the most important things of creating many combat encounters is you don't want to just make every combat the same thing. You know, a plain square room with the same sorts of beings using the same sorts of tactics. And one way to switch things up is to run your combats or create your combats in a new and unique environment uh, with as many moving parts as possible. Because moving parts make the players and make yourself as the, as the DM um, think about combat in a new and different way. Mm-hmm. So, if certain squares—if you're running a tactical combat—if certain squares randomly shoot flames, um, now players are going to start thinking about that and adjusting their m- normal modus operandi to take a, take that into account. Um, That's so true. they they can't just keep doing the same tactics that they do combat after combat after combat. Yeah. Um, they have to start moving. It doesn't even have to be that complicated.
0: I mean, that's not even complicated. Like, it it can be a simple thing. Like, if you put a 10-foot by 10-foot pit in the middle of a room, that changes how the environment affects the encounter. Mm -hmm. Um, If you set your encounter area on the streets of, let's say, the Cogs in Eberron, Mm -hmm. and um, a fight breaks out, that means there's storefronts all over the place. The player characters can duck into the storefront. change the nature of how the fight is going. Sure. I bring that up because this actually happened. Um, They were fighting some messed up things and uh, they were fairly well outnumbered. So they retreated inside of a storefront into a back room and used the the choke point of the doorway to fight from. Mm -hmm. And that changes the nature of the encounter.
1: Absolutely. And it it rewards thinking about uh, the game and the story in a way other than just the mechanics that are on your page.
0: Very true. Very true. Um, A thing that you taught me about designing encounters to make it so that it's easy enough for somebody to run, but interesting enough that it makes it unique, is to have one interesting thing about an encounter. Mm -hmm. And this this could be any of the things that we're talking about, right? It could be the opposition, it could be the environment, it could be a goal, whatever it is, right? Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you can just put one thing in that changes the way the players think about the game and think about the story and think about their interaction on the grid or you know in the imaginary world, then you are doing them a service to to help them uh deal with something in a unique way, that's all.
0: hmm Uh and for entrance for, for entrance. Eh, for, for instance, um there's a there's a game that I run sometimes where it's in the spire. And the spire, it's its like an inside open air kind of um, place. And you're walking up it by walking up these pathways that are s- – these, these stone pathways mm-hmm. that are like six feet wide and like a foot thick. And they're in the – they like cross over in open air, right? Like bridges and things like that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, the thing about them is like there's no railings. So it's very Star Wars-esque. But mm-hmm. the other thing about them is that wherever you are standing on them is gravity down. So, like, mm. you can stand upside down on them. Cool. Yeah. So that's the one interesting thing, right? Mm-hmm. And the uh, one of the major encounters that happens in that space is uh, you fight a bunch of chokers. And, you know, for those who don't remember, chokers are, like, small creatures that have, like, extendy kind of, like, arms and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I always have those chokers be able to, like, rubber band slingshot themselves from, from place to place nice. as they're also moving up up and around these, uh, these Mobius-type strips. Mm-hmm. So that that's my one interesting thing for that encounter.
1: Yep. I mean it can be as like you said it can be as simple as putting a pit in a room. Yep. It can be as simple as uh you you can't kill that character that monster. You have to subdue it for whatever reason. That's true. Yep. Um whether it's to question it or to uh or if you have a uh if you're going after an object the monster possesses the object, and if you kill the monster, it disappears and goes back to Avernus. So, therefore, you can't kill it. You have to subdue it.
0: Because mm-hmm. otherwise it will just come back later.
1: Yep. And and then you have completely changed the way that the party probably has to look at it. Um, now you have to start doing weapon damage, melee weapon damage, rather than you know spell damage. Um, especially at uh, higher levels where, you know, the wizards begin to take over in terms of power, you know, where they're throwing their cones of cold. Uh, you can't do a cone of cold with subdual damage.
0: No, no, you can't. So <laughs> just
1: that caveat thrown into a an encounter can really change the way um, people look at things.
0: Uh, is there anything else about combat that you want to talk about?
1: Um, not really i think we should get to the other two because they're just as interesting in in a lot of ways so uh we can always do a deeper dive later
0: yeah in some ways more interesting yes Uh, let's talk about social then i'm gonna let you take the
1: lead on this one
0: all right so these encounters they tend to be about conversations that have a point and a purpose um A lot of them have stakes, which means like there's something going on that that can be got or gained or lost. And then others are just exposition that helps set up adventure. Mm -hmm. So this is all about, um, like I said, it's all about exposition. It's all about stakes. And it's all about drama. There's a lot of drama. You can have a lot of drama when you have situations where you can have conversation. And of course, you know, you can have drama in other spaces too, but that that helps here. So um, what are some things that people think about when setting up social encounters?
1: What I like to do is I like to think of them as combats. That um, makes sense. Treat them, treat them in very much the same way. What are the characters trying to What's their goal? Mm-hmm. Like, what do Goals they are important. Yep. <laughs> then you look at the, the opposition. What, who is the NPC or monster or whatever that they're going to be socializing with?
0: Yeah. Once uh, you actually know those two things, like it's really it's it's a lot easier to run a social encounter. Like right. what do the player characters want? What do the NPCs want? Okay, yep. now we can have a conversation.
1: Right. If you know those two things, then the, the only thing that comes from that is what methods do the characters have at their disposal to meet their goals either in conjunction with the NPCs or in opposition to the NPCs. Mm-hmm. And this is where something like uh, the fourth edition idea of a skill challenge comes in, because what the skill challenge tried to do was get the DM to think in terms of frameworks of how to handle the adjudication of this. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I, so all, all that was do that's that's all that a skill challenge is in in terms of a social skill challenge.
0: Yeah. I always felt that that applying skill challenges to social encounters was a terrible idea because it didn't, it didn't, uh, cause that, that three check thing didn't right. give a, give, didn't give the fluid back and forth conversation. Right.
1: Right. And, and that's, that's a, that is, that's a twofold thing. Um, first it's because a sk- the skill challenge was something that they threw in very late in the process of, of designing fourth edition and they didn't, Put out rules for it um, and, and explain those rules in a way that helped dms who might have trouble running such encounters um, to help make it smooth mm-hmm. and the second I- thing is uh, the the skill challenge for me, what the skill challenge did as I said was just to help the dm think in terms in mechanical terms for something that had always been a non-mechanical interaction in the game. Yeah, I mean,
0: it it, it is what you said it was. It provides right. a framework for more complex tasks.
1: Right. So the the problem that happened with the skill challenge was as I said it wasn't explained really well for for a large section of the DMing community who didn't have the background to know how to build onto the framework. Right, mm-hmm. and so all they did was eschew role playing completely and say, "Okay, give me a—I forgot what it was—diplomacy check." I think for fourth edition. Yeah. Um, and oh, you made it okay. Boom! This is the information you get, rather than putting a a role playing skin over the top of the frame,
0: and, and rather than saying like, "Well, you have a goal; they have a goal; they have it; they they have right. wants and needs." Right. <laughs> well, they might have leverage, which we'll talk about in a second. But like, so like, how or you might have leverage on them, and what does that all mean, right? Like, how does this conversation actually play out, and what is the story surrounding it?
1: Right. And so, you know, if you if you think about a social encounter like this, an inter a social interaction encounter, in terms of a combat, then you can begin to um, m- mechanize the encounter in a way that's not just rolling dice but that gives weight to the dice in the storytelling and in the role-playing. Because it's just a matter of thinking. This, this NPC has information that the players want. What are their, what's the NPC goals? Based on those goals, what mechanics can I use to let the players interact with the game on, a, on that mechanical level while also role-playing?
0: Yeah, or do we even need to use the mechanics to interact? Because maybe you don't,
1: it, and it, and and that is completely fine. You know, it's completely fine to play that way. I on Twitter, I I did you know something about this, and you know I I basically said think about what the social um, mechanics are of the encounter to to let the player use the rules on their character sheet to to play, yeah. and uh, Chris Lindsay of Wizards of the Coast said, well, what about if they just come up with a really cool plan? And I'm like, that's great. Then you don't have to roll. And and that's there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It all depends on the game that you're running, the goals that you've set, and the desire of your players.
0: Yeah. So so here, here's an example because I, I always think examples are good. The player characters go to talk to somebody who knows – Knows the location of uh, of a bad guy that they need to get to. Sure. But they only have a limited amount of time. Mm-hmm. So they go and talk to this NPC, and they're like, look, we need to find this person, la-da-da-da-da. Tell us where they are. Now, that could trigger a role. But because the NPC is like, well, if they get rid of this person for me, then that makes it easier for me to expand my criminal empire, then I should probably just tell them that. And even on the bad end, like, if these player characters are going to probably come after me later, like, one, someone's one of my enemies is going to kill another one of my enemies. So I'm just going to tell them
1: mm-hmm. yeah. because it furthers my agenda. Right. And and so what you're doing then bef- beforehand is saying, you know, what is the goal of the, the NPC? And if the mm-hmm. goal is to have one enemy defeat the other enemy, he will happily do that.
0: Or if the, the goal, overarching goal for them is to expand their criminal
1: empire... Like then that fits inside of that, right? Sure. But you could also say they have this information that's very valuable. So what they would give it up for is gold. Mm-hmm. Um, if So if they offer gold, boom, they automatically succeed. Which is a mechanic in the game. It's yeah. a currency. Right. Uh, they could do it through persuasion, but the persuasion that they need to use falls under these two categories. Persuasion of... The enemy, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Mm-hmm. Or, listen, we could kill you, <laughs> but we don't want to do that. So let's let's have a fair trade: your life for your information.
0: Yeah. So what you're talking about is leverage. Exactly. Yeah. Like, what is the leverage that you are applying to get the information that you want?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And how and how did you apply that leverage? Because like the um, the woman like we'll kill you. Is an intimidation check, right? Right. Is intimidation a skill in the
1: game? I always get yeah. confused. Intimidation, yeah. persuasion, deception yes. are the three charisma. Yeah.
0: Um the uh the bribe one is a persuasion check, right? Right. Or the enemy of my enemy, like that's that's persuasion. Right. Right. So those are those are like the two big ones, is persuasion and intimidation. Either you're gonna be nice about it or you're gonna be mean about it. I mean you could lie of course, but that is something completely different.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I mean the, the the problem that's always been in the game while we've had these skills is the role playing doesn't necessarily match the the ability check, right? You could be a player that's terrible at, like I am right now, finding the right words, <laughs> but roll a twenty seven on your persuasion check, and so you can play it many different ways, right? You can just do the have the player give the gist of what their character would say, not role-playing it out, but saying, I'm going to use this strategy uh, and then roll the die, and that tells you how well it does.
0: Yeah, and then we can sort of figure out what the story was from that.
1: Right. The other way is to make the roll first and then act out what happened based on the roll. Yeah, so we we either... Which is also a fun way to do things. Correct. Because if you roll that natural one then you can act out being a horrible uh, persuader or a horrible intimidator, which it makes for some good comedy at the table. Mm -hmm. It
0: also does another thing. um, So both ways do things. So so the one like you you roll and then act it out. Like you've rolled and you start acting, and that provides context to the situation. And, Mm -hmm. And the idea is that both of those things provide context. And it's really hard to create story if that is your thing off of a game. If you don't have context to build around, so like it's a it's a conversation, right? So yep. you need you need something to bounce back and forth off of. Mm-hmm. So like, um, regardless of what you do mechanically, like you need a little something at least to then springboard to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It was another one of those things that the the, the just rolls from fourth edition for skill checks without having role playing surrounding it made it feel not like a role playing game. Yep. because there was no story surrounding it, so it was hard to understand what was going on.
1: It's very true. And so the final thing with social interaction is also the final thing we should have talked about in, in the combat encounter. It's true. Which is, what do you do with failure? Uh-huh. So in a combat, it's not likely, especially in 5th edition at, at, as you go up in levels, but the, the characters could lose, right? They could all be knocked unconscious or killed or... Or you know, fail to meet the goal that was set. Always have in mind what happens then. Mm-hmm. Same thing with social. You know, if they're trying to get this information, and they can't get it out of the, the NPC that has the information, what do you do next? What are um, you know? What's going to get you to the point that the characters need to get to? Um, do they have to go to another person where it's going to cost them more? in terms of leverage to get the information. Yeah, absolutely. Or do they eventually get to where they need to go, but because it took them longer, there's now twice as many bad guys. Yeah, or and, some other bad thing happened, right? Exactly. So there should be consequences for failure, just as there are consequences for success. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so for any encounter, whether it's social, whether it's uh, uh, combat, or even if it's exploration, as we'll talk about soon, uh, always have that in mind, what... What is the fail state for this encounter? Or a partial fail state for the encounter, even.
0: Do you want to save exploration for next time as we're at, like, you know, 45 minutes?
1: Okay, yeah. We can, uh, we'll can. we save exploration for next time and then uh, move on to maybe mixing the pillars effectively in multi-pillar encounters.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because I really do love talking about how exploration and combat work together, and how social and combat work together, and how social and exploration work together. Like they're they're all they're all really good mixes, and you can even mix all three of them at the same time. There
1: you
0: go. All right. Well, I want to say thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Let's do a few Patreon shout shoutouts. Uh, Jared Rasher, Mike Aimer, which I'm I'm sorry I didn't get to see you folks at Winter Fantasy. Uh, Richard Drewane, Scott Ryder, Stephen Farrell, the Tabletop Bellhop, T. Caustic, Thomas Bagley, Brett Just Brett, and Chris Steele. Mm-hmm. Uh, Speaking of patrons, if you'd like to be a patron of Dalit D&D, you can click on the link to our Patreon page, which is on our website, misdirectedmark.com. And for $2 a month, you can get yourself a shout out.
1: Or for $4 a month, you not only get a shout out, but you also get to see our pre-production show notes and access to the Misdirected Mark Slack Room for Life, where you can talk with Chris or me or many of the hosts of the Misdirected Mark podcast shows.
0: Yeah, It's quite a good time. Quite a good time. It is. Uh, also that's how you can get into uh, access to our minecraft server and play minecraft with oh. people if you can't help us monetarily but you want to give us a boost you can do so with an apple podcast review
1: you know the drill here folks those reviews help us so if you're listening and you have a way to rate our show we would love a five-star review any way you can get it to us or what just mean? share our uh, links on social media that would be great too
0: uh, that would be wonderful especially on twitter Twitter is like our, our home right now since G plus is going away.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, Sean, where can we
1: find you on the internet? Uh, speaking of Twitter, the best place to talk to me is on Twitter at Sean Merwin, or if you want to hear what the mad wizard is up to, you can find him at menagerie wizard on Twitter. How about you, Chris? Uh, misdirected Mark
0: at misdirected Mark is the network and the show Twitter. You can also go to the website, where We can catch other great shows such as this one. She's a Super Geek She's a Super Geek is an actual play Role-playing game podcast Highlighting women as GMs Join them every other Tuesday For lots of different RPGs and guests
1: Down with D&D is a misdirected Mark production The media arm of Encoded Designs Hey Mr. Mad Wizard What are we going to do now? We're going to go kill Or talk to Or talk to then kill Or kill then talk to Some monsters Speak with dead Every time Get down with D and
0: D. you Get know down with D and D. Yeah, you Get know down with D and D. you Who's down with D and D? Down with you Get down with D and D. Yeah, you I'm down with D and D. Who's down with D and D?